0: Welcome, welcome. This is Plato's Pods. Today is June 13th and we are here in this beautiful Toronto morning. I hope it is beautiful evening or afternoon or whatever, whenever time uh, you're experiencing in your own location. We are here today with James Myers. Uh, Welcome James. What are we talking about today?
1: Thank you, Eva, and uh, looking forward to discussing today the second part of the Theotetus, which is Plato's dialogue on knowledge. And I just want to welcome everybody here. We've got a number of new people, which is great and uh, looking forward to those returning as well, who've been with us in our previous episodes. So two weeks ago, we discussed the first part of the Theotetus and we ended that part of the discussion at the point where Socrates talks about memory and the difference between memory and perception. And that was at 167C of the dialogue. And so that's where we'll pick up today. Just you know, by way of introduction, just a few points uh, about this series. So we're at the last episode now, episode number 10 of the podcast series that we began some months ago. And we'll take a break from here until September. So this will end what we'll call season one. And we'll look forward to starting season two in September with a focus on the Republic and Parmenides, two particular dialogues of Plato's, the Republic being, I think, perhaps the longest. And we'll focus on that starting in September, on those two starting in September. And we'll build in some of the other dialogues that we haven't had a chance to look at yet. Uh, But over the course of the summer, I'm hoping that I'll be able to conduct a few one-on-one interviews and post those as podcasts for those who are interested in following the uh, the podcast series over the summer. And as a reminder, after each episode, we'll post the uh, the podcast to rss.com slash podcast slash Plato's Pod. For those who want to listen, it's also uh, located on Spotify, and we'll try to get it up on a few other platforms as well. I'm, I'm new to podcasting, and would be very grateful for any assistance that anybody uh, might be able to offer. And In terms of uh, really making this resonate, you know, the whole purpose of this series is really just to make sure that everybody is able to share and a bit of knowledge. And, you know, for me, it's been a great journey of discovery. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, you know, in these 10 recorded sessions and then in the seven sessions that we had before these to have read so many of Plato's dialogues that I hadn't read before. And to discover, I think, particularly in discussion with people, points that I had never thought of before. So this is, I think, the benefit of the series is that people are raising things that, you know, each of us maybe individually hadn't thought of before, but together we're able to accumulate some knowledge that hadn't been there before. And so, uh, you know, today we're looking at Plato's dialogue specifically on knowledge, uh, the Theotetus, and so that's where that's where we're at. At the end of the recording, after about two hours, um, we'll turn the recording off. And those who wish to stay uh, for what we call Plato's Cafe, that's just a casual discussion. And we'll look forward to having that uh, for about a half an hour afterwards. For those who wish to to stay uh, and join us for that, just as a reminder, again, uh, we'll do as we did before. And uh, when you wish to speak, um, please use the raise hands function in Zoom. And uh, I'll take them in the order that uh, that they're raised with preference to those who haven't spoken before. So very much looking forward to a great discussion today. And just to remind where we ended off two weeks ago in our last discussion. So so two weeks ago, we began our discussion on the Theatetus. And we began it with a we, we showed on the screen an interview of physicist Richard Feynman. And that was conducted in the 1970s and preserved in recorded memory. So, although Feynman died 33 years ago his memory resonated with a number of us watching the video clip uh, as he spoke about the difference between knowing the name of something like a bird the brown-throated thrush was his example uh, in many languages and the difference between knowing that and knowing the function and consequences of the thing you are speaking of so Feynman said, knowing the name of something is useful if you want to communicate with others. And that's something that we connected to Plato's Phaedrus, another dialogue that we looked at a few months ago. And the Phaedrus focuses on communication. But as Feynman said, knowing the idea is more important than knowing the name. So the idea, as we've been discussing over the past you know, nine podcast episodes, leads to the general form. And that, I think, is something that is very much in the focus of Plato's theory of forms that uh, that we've been touching on throughout our discussions. So as, as we move from particulars, such as the name and function and colour and size and measurements of an object, such as Feynman's brown-throated thrush, as we move from there to the general idea of what that bird is. So the Feynman interview was a powerful example and led to a fascinating discussion. And I was so pleased to re-listen to the entire recording yesterday to recall the many excellent points that were raised. Uh, so our reading of Socrates' question at 154a, so we read uh, that, that, uh, those few paragraphs out, and Socrates' question was that something doesn't appear the same, even to yourself, because you never remain like yourself. That was his question. And that triggered a kind of a special interest, I think, in our discussion. At various points during the discussion, um, You know, there were some fascinating comments. JK commented that memory can be selective. Neri added that stressful memories can be altered as a coping mechanism. Joel gave a particularly delicious example of how memories can transport us back in time. Greg asked how we tie down knowledge when the known is the limit of the always greater unknown. I really like that. And JK added that if we are discovering rather than inventing math, how can man be the measure of all things, including that which precedes us? And of course, man whether man is a measure of all things is, I think, the real central point of the Theaetetus, the, that question that Socrates raises at the beginning about Protagoras's contention that man is the measure of all things. Moshe raised the fascinating idea of public and private language. Donald wondered how an organism would maintain its own continuous, uh, its own continuum, if everything is in flux. And that's a question that we could revisit today in discussing Socrates' statements about Heraclitus. So, as I mentioned, the core question of the Theotetus is whether the belief of Protagoras that man is a measure of all things is valid, understanding that measurement requires this delimitation between two things, that which is in being and that which is in non-being. So, is man the measure of all things that are and are not? And that's what Socrates says at 152a that we looked at last time. So such measurements are based on perception and are stored in memory, which makes perception different from knowledge. And that's the conclusion that Socrates and Theotetus reach at 164b, which is where we ended our last discussion. So we'll pick up today uh, in the second part, which we'll end at 187c, where Socrates sets out the two types of motion. So one type of motion is spatial, and that's the type that we're all familiar with. So when you think of moving, you're moving through space. And so we all just automatically associate motion with spatial motion. But Socrates says the other type of motion is the alteration of our state of being. And I thought it would be interesting to begin today's session by listening to a few minutes of Quantum Magazine's Joy of X podcast interview by mathematician Steve Strogatz. And he's interviewing mathematician and computer scientist Melanie Mitchell. And I thought Melanie's words were particularly relevant to Theotetus in helping us to understand the transmission in knowledge in a 21st century. Uh, so we've moved in history from being a society that really transmits knowledge using an oral tradition. You know, for thousands of years, humans transmitted knowledge orally because there really was no other way. There was no printing press. There was no internet. There was no computers. So we'd moved from that in the 21st century to the point now where knowledge and memories are perhaps more often stored and transmitted digitally. Uh, So as we listen to this a few minutes of this podcast interview, we might consider how knowledge can be generalized uh, in the storage of specific data points. And again, thinking of the the general forms of knowledge. And Melanie discusses uh, in the context of facial recognition and the infinite possibilities of real world variability, this kind of issue that they're having now with artificial intelligence. You can also maybe think about, you know, by what means the account of the reasons why, which is how Socrates described knowledge at the end of the Mino can be stored accurately and in the correct order in the rapidly increasing power of artificial intelligence today. And so I just wanted to introduce us with that idea. And if we can, uh, if Eva, if you could, put on that podcast interview, there's no real pictures to look at other than the the uh, page on which the podcast is hosted, but uh, it's just a few minutes of, of Melanie Mitchell. So Melanie is the computer science scientist who is speaking here to mathematician Steve Strogatz.
2: This is one of the most surprising things about artificial intelligence today is that how well these systems can do in these particular narrow tasks that If a human could do that well, we would say, boy, that person is really brilliant. And we would assume that they could be brilliant in many areas. And if, you know, they have intuition, incredible intuition about Go, we would think, well, they probably could probably have intuition about other things. But the strange thing is that these machines, don't seem to be able to transfer what they've learned or their brilliance about chess or Go or go into other areas, transcribing spoken language and mm-hmm. mapping out routes for us in our cars and all of the things that that these machines do so well. It seems like you'd need general intelligence to do these things well, but it turns out you don't, that Alpha Go and Alpha Zero don't seem to be able to transfer what their kind of brilliance to any other domain than the one that they've been trained on. Now, Uh one thing about, you know, you you, you sort of implied that if a machine could be so brilliant and have so much incredible intuition about playing chess, for example, that maybe it could do the same about science. But chess and science are very different. (laughs) Yes. You know, chess has specific rules and Uh has kind of discrete states, meaning, you know, the chessboard is in a certain state at any time, and there's only a relatively small number of possible moves you could make at any turn.
3: True. Yep, true.
2: So, in that sense, it's very different from the real world in which there's just a seemingly infinite number of possibilities, and it's not constrained in the same way. Back in the early days of AI, a lot of people believed that if a machine could play chess, it would it would have to have general intelligence, human-level
3: intelligence. So, when when you refer to general intelligence, as a, is that as opposed to what narrow intelligence? Yeah,
2: I guess that's kind of a, a buzzword in AI, and it means kind of the goal of AI. The original goal, at least, was to have a machine machine that could be like a human, and that the, the machine could do many tasks, and could learn something in one domain, like if i learned how to play checkers maybe that would help me learn better how to play chess or mm-hmm. other other similar games or even that i could use things that i'd learned in chess in, in in other areas of life that that we can we sort of have this ability to generalize the things that we know or the things that we've learned and Apply it to many different kinds of situations, but this is something that's eluded AI systems for its entire history.
3: I'm I'm not sure I really understand the idea that if a person or a, a computer is said to have general intelligence, they will be good at many things that require intelligence. That's the idea, right? If you're smart, you're smart.
2: That's the idea. If you're smart, you're smart. If you and I would say even further, if you if you've learned something, you've learned something. <laughs> so, you know, a. a, a if I've learned, if I say that I've learned, for example, to um, recognize faces, okay, then I can recognize faces even if the lighting is different or if, ah. if there's like, a, if somebody's grown a mustache or, you know, is wearing glasses <laughs> or, you know, any number of possible um, alterations that we're pretty good at adapting yes. to changes in the world.
3: I see, so, like when we when we are challenged by these online systems that ask us to prove we're not a robot by recognizing the letters, you know, and it's they're all gunked up and distorted and they've got slashes through them and stuff. That's the uh, called capture, right? this this technology. yeah, that's something we find kind of ridiculously easy. That's still hard for computer vision.
2: Uh, so but, yes. but not hard
3: for us, because we know yes. how to recognize letters.
2: Well, so the letters, you know, one thing you might have noticed is that there's fewer CAPTCHAs that use the letters and more that use pictures.
3: Yeah, lately, right. Yeah, And
2: because, that's because the ones that have used the letters, those are now vulnerable to computers. Computers can now solve those. Really? But okay.
3: the ones that use pictures are much harder is that because of neural networks getting better or the new style of ai
2: partially or, or yeah and, and other not not only neural networks but also other techniques in vision okay. um, but people have cracked the letter captchas okay but the 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 image captchas where it says like you know click every box where you see a car yeah, those kind. That, those are harder for machines, you know. The uh-huh. General images, recognizing things in images, is a much harder problem than recognizing letters.
3: Okay, so so you're saying this is sort of something where human beings have a big big edge at the moment, and that's because we have general intelligence, or what?
2: Well, we're certainly better at at visual recognition.
1: Thank you, Eva, for uh, for bringing us that recording. I, you know, I just maybe just thought we could start here or anywhere people like today. But I just was particularly struck in that um, in that discussion about this idea of general intelligence and its difference to the particulars. And again, just trying to relate that to the idea of the theory of forms. in, in my mind, and and you know, I, I I too have noticed. You know, they talked at the end about those recapture challenges uh, where we are presented, you know, to make sure that we're not, that we're real humans interacting with with, uh, the appropriate websites uh, that we've had to move now from that letter recognition because uh, computers are able to recognize letters now and we've had to move to image recognition. And I've certainly experienced that too in the past few years, but she mentioned, Melanie mentioned this idea of alteration and our ability to, recognize altered states, you know, in that facial recognition example that she gave, um, I thought was particularly interesting, you know, so you can recognize a face, and you can recognize it even when a mustache is grown, or glasses are put on, or some change is made. And, and so that's, I think, part of the real human experience. And uh, so it it just struck me as particularly interesting as we move uh, in the transmission of knowledge from that oral tradition that was historically the case to, one that's more computer-based and you know melanie mitchell is such a well-spoken uh, i think and such an intelligent computer scientist with a very good math background and that that was a fascinating discussion so anybody who wants to listen to the full discussion um you know it's on the joy of x podcast and I, I have i've been so much enjoying that podcast uh recently so i'm just wondering what people thought about that and and you know how how you think that this affects our appreciation of knowledge and our ability to, you know, understand and to measure the transmission of knowledge um, in the modern times. Uh, Rich, your hand is up. If, uh, would you like to start the discussion?
4: Yes. Thank you. I am a chess player and I've watched the evolution of uh, uh, computer chess from its inceptions where these little computers with chess boards, Modern chess computers have nothing to do with AI. It's all about brute force. Originally, they had some hopes, but they gave up because there's no way, zero way, to replicate a human mind by digits in a computer. No way. So what they do now is they throw an enormous amount of computer power and just do a brute force analysis. They can do it very fast. And it doesn't play at all like a human. When you play a computer, you know you're playing a computer. It does not react at all like a human being. So AI is actually not AI anymore. I mean, if you ever tried to talk to one of these AI, like uh, um, uh, uh, customer support uh, things, you give up. It's hopeless. You just want the customer service rep already. It's, you cannot replicate a human mind with discrete, it's impossible. So they've almost thrown into power. Actually I was involved in the early ages of AI when they were talking about all these glamorous things that they were going to do. And that was about maybe 40 years ago, nothing happened the way they thought it would. What happened was computers got cheaper, processing power got cheaper, storage power got cheaper. Programming languages got a little bit easier to use. Programmers got more experience on how to do brute force analysis. And so the so-called AI never appeared and never will appear. What they will have is brute force analysis using uh, faster and faster processors and bigger and bigger storage, faster storage mechanisms.
1: Thank thank Thanks for that observation, Rich. It's, and and welcome to, to Plato's Pod. It's, uh, um, I, I think it's a, important what you said and, and to understand, I think what you meant by mean by brute force, for those who haven't heard the, the term before, it's this idea, I think, if I'm understanding it correctly, it's this idea that computers will just simply work through as many combinations and permutations as possible. Uh, and they can do this, I think, faster than the human mind, just because, you know, our brains are limited in the amount of power that we can deliver to them. Um, whereas you can just keep adding memory circuits to to computers, and uh, and they'll just continue churning through the the uh, the options. And, and you know, Melanie in that interview mentioned, you know, kind of the infinite possibilities of the real world. You know, so maybe that kind of touches on what you said: um, is that the computer is working through specific limited probabilities, but is the computer able to reach the infinite? Uh, Probability of real world living. Um,
4: A good good case in point. A good case in point is the Go versus chess. Go is nowhere near. Computerized chess is nowhere near as advanced as regular chess because the number of possibilities are far greater. So Go has not reached anywhere near. Maybe eventually it will. Again, as processing power gets cheaper and storage gets cheaper, it may. uh, But because of the enormous a variety or possibilities, and go; they cannot do anywhere close to what they could do in chess.
5: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, and when we when we use the term artificial intelligence, um, you know, do we really understand what intelligence means when we're applying that to a machine, or is it is there some fundamental different fundamentally different meaning in the word intelligence? Uh, and this maybe goes back to what we were talking about in in our last session two weeks ago. You know, in that Feynman interview where Feynman says, you know, knowing the the name of something is different from knowing the function or the application of that thing. Uh, and and that's an interesting question. Are we using the word intelligence in a way that really um, acknowledges our own capacity, or are we you know, artificially reducing our capacity to that of a machine that you're that you're talking about, Rich, I'll just, I'll, I'll go back to you, Rich, if I can just take JK first, and then we'll come back to you, Rich, JK.
6: Yeah, I, I think you just uh, touched on a real good point that, uh, that in our uh, human, uh, you know, uh, specialization, right, uh, we are uh, giving up um, this um, neglecting our general knowledge and learning capacity. And we're becoming uh, like a computer, specialized in certain areas, and we're losing maybe losing that intelligence.
5: It's
1: yeah, and maybe it's it's that idea, JK, of um, you know. I think the idea of exercising the mind. I I, I think it was in, I think it was in Phaedrus that yeah, it was in Phaedrus that Plato wrote uh, about well, yet Socrates explaining this idea that the soul needs to continually exercise in order to be able to remember. And importantly, in the, in Phaedrus and elsewhere, um, he made the point that the soul remembers from inside, not from outside. And I think that's something that maybe we could uh, think about today and, uh, and tie into a few of the readings that we might look at today. Um, Rich.
4: Yes, I'll be quick, because I see Greg wants to speak. Um- In terms of artificial intelligence and technology, it's purely marketing. It helps raise money. Uh, It's it's brute force computing. Nothing has changed. If you look at the algorithms, they're just getting smarter and programming languages and the computers are getting faster and they could do things in parallel. It's kind of like quantum intelligence now. It's just a word thrown out. In terms of human intelligence, well, that's a a whole different story. That's like talking about knowledge. So I'm not going to attempt to define what human intelligence is, but it's an interesting subject. Thank you.
1: Definitely. And um, actually, just, you know, you mentioned something, and I've mentioned this before in an episode, and I forgot the title of it. So there's a really good book that I would recommend. uh, That just talks a little little bit about the history of of computer science. And this was written by a retired uh, University of Toronto computer science professor, Hector Levesque. I bought it a few years ago, and it was really, it, it's a wonderfully concise, relatively short read. It's called Common Sense, The Turing Test, and The Quest for Real AI. And uh, Hector started in the industry, I think, back in the 1960s. And back then, he says that the, the intent was to develop machines that have general intelligence, you know, such as, I think, maybe what Melanie is talking about in, in that interview, that that have the ability to generalize from particulars. And then he makes the point, I think, as you did just there, Rich, that that it became this kind of brute force method as memory became cheaper. We were able to store more data points. But I think the real question is, how are we able to connect those data points and in which order are we able to connect those data points? And I think that's fundamentally important to what Plato's saying. You know, at the end of the was I think I mentioned before, he says that knowledge is the account of the reasons why. How do we deliver that account? You know, where does the account start? What steps does it take in the process and where does it end up? And if we're gonna store this account of the reasons why, where and how do we store it? So I'll just, in my dissertation on that and we'll go to Greg and then JK and then Rich. Greg, welcome.
7: Okay, uh, my my take on this question of human intelligence is that we, you know, it's a, it's a progress. We don't really still have a, a, a full understanding about human intelligence, and I think we learned a lot by the artificial intelligence about ourselves. you know every time we see that it's different, it's actually a discovery not just about a computer but about us that we are different fundamentally from this uh, digital kind of intelligence and, uh, and and I think as 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 a, as a computing uh, science uh, it's progress. Artificial intelligence uh, is it, more progress. I think we understand more, about that. but but uh, we we kind of realize more and more what, what intelligence is is more more dimensional. That any time that computer learn to do something human can do, we call it intelligence. That's, but that's very narrow design uh, definition. A broader definition is is what they alluded to sort of a, a general intelligence that may be, but but what it is. Uh, general intelligence is merely the connection of a, of a multiple modulus you know and so it's it's hard to hard to do and 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 in the early days i i have you know played with artificial intelligence actually actually designed uh, use uh, you know these uh, neural network uh, designed uh, uh, a prediction model to predict uh, the decay of steel uh in, in different weathers and uh, you use that thing and and this thing is still on the, on the net as you're using, but, but by, through the learning, I think I got something that that the understanding is that, you know, the intelligence, the level of intelligence really depends on the, your database, it's limited by your data. How many data is, is it still trained? The word is trained is very important. In all these intelligence, they are trained with with real life experiences, with data that are created by the human. So in a sense that they are limited on that level already, that they cannot get more data than us. So come to the, you know, the the, the comparison between between chess and Go. I'm a chess, I'm a, I'm a Go player. So, so I, I, you know, all, 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 over the years, I have been watching also how a computer is progressing in terms of to play Go. And back in the 90s, and we have some Go software, and I can beat the software at the time. But now, uh, the last goal, uh, you know, alpha goal beat the best uh, uh, goal player in the world, I think uh, three or four years ago. And now that that's, uh, no human can beat, uh, beat alpha goal anymore. And, uh, and I follow up a little bit, you know, the, there's, a, there's a movie about it, and I think uh, they learned a different strategy now. That, uh, you know, before it was all uh, data training to to pick up all the all the move, best move for the best chess player. They say you cannot do that. So they have a two level. one is the high level strategy to look at the overbore, and another level is local tactic. So one's a global, one is a local. So that kind of move the modular type to sort of more general type. Now when is that going to be moved into other area that I, I think it't, but fundamentally, I think you know come to the uncertainty because so while we have uh, and all these uh, all these artificial intelligences they are still have finite number of algorithms, finite number of equations, finite number of set of data for training. So the whole thing is finite. Now you can use a more com- powerful computer to increase the finality to a bigger number, but it's still finite, finite. But uh, the, the real world is really unlimited. Think about it, you know, the, the real world is made of materials. Materials uh, is come down to atoms. So even a drop of ink contains billions of, of atoms, and then you, you don't really know each atom has to work. And when we speak, it involves the whole body, which is a billion, 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 billions of items work together to generate a speech. So I think fundamentally, uh, I, I, I still skeptical about artificial intelligence, but they are doing better in modules, but as a whole, I don't know. But anyway, that's my comment.
1: Really fascinating use of some words there, Greg. That really I think give us pause to to think. You know, you you talked about uh, human intelligence having more dimensions, and that dimensionality I think is a very it, it sparked a, an interesting image in my mind. You talked about the multiple modulus of uh, human intelligence. I, I love that and. Uh, you know this idea that the AI you use the example of of go which is what Melanie started talking about in in that clip that we listened to um you know this this idea that the computer is still based on finite algorithms which I think is what rich was kind of implying at the beginning um, so yeah I, I would really like to to expand on on what you just said I think it's it's so fun fundamental so thank you for that and we'll go to rich and then to Moshe.
4: Thank you. Just to uh, expand what Greg's saying, um, human beings have two aspects to their mind. One is habit, and the other is novelty or creative uh, expansion. Uh, Computers, first of all, humans make computers. Computers are a tool, they're made by humans. The computers don't make humans. So the the direction is one way. And uh, uh, humans, Can through novelty and creativity create computers. So, uh, computers, even though they can modify themselves, the programs can modify themselves. They can only modify themselves to the limit of what they're allowed to modify themselves by the overall structure of the program. They cannot have novelty. The human mind has the ability to create something new, inspiration for example. And so while we discuss uh, Socrates, uh, uh, we are using our creative mind to come up with new ideas spontaneously. While we may have habit of one way to look at Socrates, maybe from what we've learned and what we studied, we also have the ability to spontaneously come up with new ideas. And that would be an aspect of what I would call the human mind or the intelligence of the human mind.
1: Interesting. that, And I I think what you just said ties to that reading that we did uh, last time from uh, 154a, in which, um, again, Socrates says, well, and do you even feel sure that anything appears to another human being like it appears to you? Wouldn't you be much more disposed to hold that it doesn't appear the same even to yourself because you never remain like yourself? And I think that touched a a particular um, resonance last time when we read that and this idea that and and Socrates talks about that in the in the first part that we read. You know, when he uh, when he consumes wine when he's healthy, it tastes good. When he consumes wine when he is ill, it does not taste good. And you know, each each perception changes the percipient. So each observation changes the observer. And that's, I think, a fundamental aspect of the quantum realm that we've talked about before. And, and uh, I think Greg mentioned that with the word uncertainty, you know, so we've got this physical principle of uncertainty that Heisenberg established. Physics operates with uncertainty. And then we've got this idea of infinite potential uh, in, our, in our imagination or... Uh, our ability to be novel, which is, I I like that phrase that you just used. So I think that's, uh, I think that's a uh, interesting thing for us to consider. So thank you for that. Um, Moshe, we'll go to you and welcome. Good morning. I've been having a hard time
8: trying to get a foothold in this conversation. It's interesting conversation. Uh, I just want to say about Socrates that uh, if he was drinking that traditionally uh, Greek wine, Retsina, it will never taste good, healthy or otherwise. Uh, the lady, what was the name, Michelle or Melanie. Melanie, yeah. Yeah. And she was bringing up this question about general uh, intelligence and particular intelligence. And uh, first of all, I agree, maybe it was Rich who said that, that or, or maybe it was you who said that, that we, we're not talking, you know, we're there. Intelligence is very ambiguous. Okay. We don't know what we're talking about uh, until we start to, to define this thing. And, you know, she was raising the question, I guess, in her own mind philosophically that, you know, if, if what a machine lacks is general intelligence that, uh, you know, a human being, you know, machine can have particular intelligence, but it can't, um, have general intelligence. And her example of that was that if you're good at, um, uh, you know, if you're good at playing chess, uh, you should be good at building a bridge. Okay. Now that wasn't her example, but that's my example to show the fallacy of what she's thinking about, because building a bridge is an entirely different kind of knowledge than, you know, or writing poetry, uh, you know, is an entirely different kind of knowledge than, you know, than playing chess or go or or um, solitaire, or anything else. The so that's one thing I, I you know I I want to point out a, a thing that I learned a thousand years ago um, was that there are many different sorts of genius. Okay, um, for instance, uh, and, and this is another way of saying there's very many sorts of intelligence. Um, uh, Napoleon was a was was a, a, a uh, a genius at war you know he was a genius at strategy and and, uh, and and he knew how to you know direct his men he was a genius at, at at directing people but you know I I wouldn't go to Napoleon if I wanted a good booyah base I mean that would be you know a army might travel on its stomach but you know he's not a genius in the kitchen or any or or anywhere else And somebody else who's, you know, who's, uh, you know, uh, a Picasso, you know, who we regard as as an art genius. Um, I wouldn't want him strapped in the seat beside me in a lunar module, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, call me nuts, but you know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be happening. So I don't think that we can really truly have this idea of this general, uh, this general intelligence in the sense that she's talking about it, because human beings don't even have that kind of general intelligence. Another thing that I want to say, which was something that she was getting at, and I think I think James, you were getting at it too, going from you know going from particulars to general uh, knowledge. Uh, I think that even a machine, I, I'm absolutely certain, and I'll certainly argue this today, that uh, you know you take the you know the you know, a machine where you can give it an infinite amount of code. I'm I'm willing to, you know, to to grant the coders all the latitude that they want. Uh, I don't think that a machine is ever going to be able to give us a general idea of a triangle. It'll only be able to give us an example of an individual triangle, of a isosceles triangle or a right triangle, or, you know, the other kinds of equilateral triangles and things like that. I think that Hume was spot on the mark when he was saying that, you know, we cannot have an idea of something. We cannot have a thought or a concept of something unless we have the thought, and I'll, I'll qualify what I said about human in a minute. Um, we cannot have, uh, we cannot come up with that unless we come up with, with an idea of a triangle that has, you know, three, it, it, not only does it have three sides, but one of the sides is two inches and one of the sides is one inch, and the, uh, the other side is, you know, the square root of three inches. Uh, we can't have any other triangle, but then the machine would never be able to, to do that. So what I want to do in this, in this thing of, of AI, although it, was very, uh, although it was very, oh, last thing about transferring intelligence. You mentioned the Phaedrus where, um, you know, the mind has to be exercised, um, you know, in order to able to have intelligence. And Plato remarked, and I can't remember if it was the Phaedrus or not, that you know, that that um, excellence in the body can be forced upon the body because I can make you do the calisthenics, okay? But excellence of the mind cannot be forced upon the mind. There's nothing that I can do to make you think about it. So let's think about transferring intelligence, okay? James, you're an intelligent guy. You want to transfer intelligence. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to your puppy dog and you're going to start talking to him. And you're going to well, puppy dog, why aren't you doing anything? I'm talking to you and I'm giving you this intelligence. I'm giving you my knowledge. Oh, okay, you say, all right, fine, puppy dog. Uh, we won't use, we, we, I'm not going to talk to you. Anymore. I'm going to write this down. All right, write this down. And now you read, oh, puppy dog, you don't read. Okay. So the same thing with... You know, I, I like to use absurd examples so that I can bring it back to a human being. You can go to another human being, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps, um, uh, Eva, okay, and say, "Eva, I want to transfer all this knowledge to you." And you know, you're doing all this this communication with her, but Eva's worried about the toy that her little kid just discovered and is going around the house shooting paintballs at you know all the all the walls in her kitchen. So she's not paying attention to you, she's looking at you and you know you're looking at her and you think there's contact there, but nothing's going back and forth. So uh, in order to be so first of all, there, there's some very human questions about transferring intelligence, transferring knowledge, and simply being able to do a data dump from one head to another is is not the same thing as transferring knowledge. the knowledge is transferred when I put the work into learning what you are telling me, okay? I can't, I can't, you can't give it to me in any other way unless I want to get it. Think about when, you know, uh, when, you know, when Wittgenstein is talking about, uh, about uh, Augustine, how did he learn, you know, how, how did he acquire language, okay? Did his parents teach him language? And Augustine said, eh, no, but I learned it. OK, I did it myself. And that's what it, it, what is going to be required in order for this knowledge to be transferred. It's going to have to be something that you have and that I created myself using you as a, a source, I guess, or something like that. So um, I guess that's all I want to say about this for the time being. As I said, I was having a little bit of a hard time getting purchase on our conversation, but I thought I would add that.
5: Appreciate that, and yeah.
1: certainly you touched on a number of interesting things, including the idea of learning, which um, I think is touched on in uh, let me just get the section here. It's 170, uh, 170B, seventy b. I think in this idea that you know if we are the all things, then those we learn from are teaching us how to measure. Um, that's kind of what I got from that part, and my understanding of what Melanie Mitchell was saying is not that, you know, because you have expertise in one area, you will necessarily have expertise in another area. I think it's more the idea that, you know, as Bushi and, and the interviewer said, if you're smart, you're smart. But then it's a question I think, as you said, Moshe, I think very well is is how do you apply those smarts and what do you choose to apply it to and what do you choose to learn? And, and do you choose to learn something that's some, do you, do you choose to receive knowledge that others have transmitted to you and do something with it or not? I think, and that's,
5: that's well, a really no, good question.
8: I'm, I'm challenging the idea that if you're smart, you're smart, because as mm-hmm. I said, uh, I think that, uh, you know, Picasso was a brilliant artist, but I, I, I don't want him in the space module. That kind of, you know, he's smart is not smart. Okay. It, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't go that way.
5: In my opinion. No, and, and actually, so I appreciate
1: that clarification. I think it, it makes me understand. So maybe is it a question then, and we can all consider this, is it a question of if you are smart, you know your limitations. So if Picasso were smart and he tried, or if, if Picasso wanted to get into the space program using his skills at art, would he be smart or would he be smart? To decide that he did, he was limited in that respect, and not do it. Um, so I, I, I like that that question that you put. Um, and let's consider that. Um, what do what does everybody else think about that? You know, and, and these good points that Moshe brought up. Um, Donald, your thoughts?
9: Well, I'm I'm an AI skeptic, and it goes back some time. One of the early researchers, Joseph Weizenbaum, wrote a what was for me a very influential book, Computer Power and Human Reason in the 70s, that pretty much said, this can't go very far. It, you know, it's, it's essentially the same thing that was pointed out before. We create computers. We've seen no evidence of computers trying to create human beings, trying to test our intelligence Try trying to do all these things that we do and do naturally and take for granted. The other thing I would I would say to sort of I think support what you said in reading Plato, and I don't have a quote or, or a citation right here. There 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 are numerous examples I think in various dialogues that suggest. That learning can be real. Teaching is problematic. It's not. It's not that you know the master teaches the student. It's that the student figures out how to learn it. And and there's a, a lot behind that. One of the things I think we see even in this dialogue with Theaetetus is that the verbal formulations remembering them, the way in which your master or your teacher provided the answer is useless. You have to be able to see the thing in itself. Just just like Feynman pointed out, that was a various, and even here in Theotetus, even in Greek mathematics, as far as I've read and I've, read a lot of stuff on Greek mathematics. They didn't believe that the drawings in the sand, like in the Mino, but, you know, you didn't prove the, the incommensurability in, in of the square root of two by some measuring exercise. You had to see the triangle. You To do Euclid, you know, you have to see the line, the, the point, and they are not lines or points from the world. That The finiteness of the world suggests these things, but they are an abstraction. And, and as Hegel reminds us, you know, that's where we fall into air. But no, but it's, it's, Seeing this, the verbalizations or the verbal formulations point us to something, but we have to do the work, the learning, for that to become knowledge for us. We don't get to appropriate somebody else's knowledge by remembering what they've said. Enough.
5: You. Um I think you put that really in a very interesting way,
1: Donald. Thank you. And the tying it to what Feynman, I think, said at the end of that clip that we listened to in our last session, um, where he said that the, if I'm remembering his words correctly, he said the history of the idea is irrelevant. Um, and it's, its I think, as you're saying, it's understanding the idea from inside. So that it's kind of, you know, if we think of the idea in Plato's context uh, of the general form Uh, that I think is what Socrates is trying to say is actually inside us, inside the soul. Um, And that's why, you know, in the Mino and elsewhere, uh, there's this idea that knowledge is recollection. So we're recalling what's inside us. And certainly that was evident in Phaedrus and that famous and Thuth uh, discussion about writing and and how that's transmitted. And certainly you, you refer to the issues of teaching and the idea that that something could be taught inappropriately. Uh, and, you know, maybe to tie it what to what Moshe said before you was, you know, if someone is taught that they can, you know, have skills in the space program when mm. they're only skilled as an artist, uh, maybe that kind of teaching is actually dangerous. And so that's the kind of knowledge that we need to be on the alert for. We'll move to a reading shortly. I think maybe, Eva, if you could prepare um the first reading for today the one entitled how can truth be both subjective and and objective uh we'll move to that shortly and uh but um meanwhile we'll just we'll take greg your your thoughts on this
7: uh yeah i was uh, still kind of dwelling on the you know the uh the intelligence uh, versus i mean human and versus a computer and uh and stimulated further by you know the uh, you know the the comments that I made uh, the, by by other people. Um, I I'm kind of thinking that you know still in terms of two realm, what succeed in the computer science is the part of a human intelligence that deal with the logical stuff, being more strictly the formal logic, can be done by computer or maybe by mathematics, and then and then you know these uh, uh, formal logical work. Type of but the illogical part of a human, human mind that uh, uh, deals with uh, you know, the creativity, for example. That creativity really is not logical uh, thinking. It really, most times, illogical. And the more illogical you are at the time, the actually you're more creative. And I can speak for myself, and, and a lot of people uh, said about that. So, so the human mind has this creativity, of free association of, of things, which is not really logical. Then there's, I think, a Marshall mentioned about you know this, uh, this idea thing. The computer is able to do the calculation, but it's not able to create an idea. I call it a conceptualization. The idea will not the, the computer, no matter how you do it and look at a lot of things, you cannot come out, come up with a, a concept like entropy or relativity. The computer cannot do that. So that comes to the, the thing I, I was thinking about the language. You know, a computer now these days, we can talk to computer, computer can talk back, but ask a computer to describe what I'm doing. Computer is hopeless. You know, you have to, computer have to take a picture and send it back to, to another human. So there's another dimension too, like how we a how human employ our intelligence is heavily influenced by the emotion. And then, and then, and then, also heavily influenced by the values. You know, we make a certain judgment. Oftentimes, it's emotional based and value based. And then, the, those values, emotions are oftentimes the beginning point of our making the association, which leads it to the creativity.
5: So anyway, that's what happened, what I want to say. You use some interesting <laughs> words there, and the idea that uh, creativity is illogical,
1: or maybe sometimes illogical, uh, I think is a point that Feynman touched on in the end of that clip when he talked about uh, how Dirac, uh, the great physicist uh, Paul Dirac, um, sometimes arrived at his conclusions simply by guessing. Uh, so he used a method of guessing, whereas Heisenberg, uh, Feynman said, used a measurement. For Heisenberg could not arrive at a conclusion unless he could measure the various pieces of knowledge that led to that conclusion. So each of us has a different approach to generating ideas, I guess, is is the the key point that was being made. And um, the, um, you know, maybe that ties a little bit to what Donald said about the incommensurability of the square root of two, for example. Uh, in In that spiral of Theodorus that we ended looking at the last session, we saw the incommensurable uh, roots, uh, one of them being the square root of two. and you know to, to bring it to what you were just saying, you know how can a, pr- a computer prove the incommensurability of the square root of two if the only method of proof that has ever been used is reductio ad absurdum, which is how I understand the square root of 2 was proven to be incommensurable. You try all of the explanations, none of them work. You wind up in an at an at an absurd position if you try to uh, apply any particular proof to it, and therefore it is proven because there is no available proof, uh, no available specific proof. so I may have used the wrong words to describe reductio ad absurdum, but that that's my understanding of the basis of the proof of the incommensurability. And so uh, you know that spiral, we saw the commensurable measure, which was one uh, and that went around the perimeter of the spiral Uh, and then we saw inside the spiral we saw these incommensurable measures and so that you know when we think about Protagoras and and the question of Protagoras is man the measure of all things in this dialogue then we have to think about how do we deal with incommensurable or illogical or irrational Items such as maybe what you just described. So, an interesting, uh, interesting thought. So, thank you for that. Um, I just wondering if we could move to this to this reading at one seventy one A to C, uh, and if we might have any volunteers to be Socrates and one to be Theodorus. I could read one of the roles if we don't have two volunteers. Or I could read the whole thing.
8: I'll be thing. Theodorus. I'm always a good Theodorus.
5: Okay, thank you, Moshe. Anybody to volunteer for Socrates? Okay. Okay, thank you, J.K. So J.K. and, and Moshe, take it away, please. 171A to C.
6: Protagoras admits, I presume, that the contrary opinion about his own opinion, namely that it is false, must be true, seeing he agrees that all men judge what is. Undoubtedly. And in, in conceding the truth of the opinion of those who think him wrong, he is really admitting the falsely falsity of his own opinion. Yes, inevitably. But for their part, the others do not admit that they are wrong. No. But Protagoras again admits this judgment
5: to be true, according to his written doctrine. So it appears. So it will be disputed, then,
6: by everyone, beginning with Protagoras. Or rather, it will be admitted by him when he grants to the person who contradicts him that he judges truly. When he does that, even Protagoras himself will be granting that neither a dog nor the man in the street is the measure of anything at all, which he has not learned. Isn't that so? It is so. Then since it is disputed by everyone, the truth of Protagoras is not true for anyone at all, not even for himself.
5: Thank you both for that uh, that reading. I think it's it's interesting to hear the
1: words aloud and to consider their meaning kind of in that speed of sound versus the speed of light and you know, the speed of sound. We actually have that ability to reflect on what's being uh, said in our own minds, it's a lot slower than the speed of light when you can skip over things. So in terms of our ability to assimilate memories, I find the speed of sound is actually uh, works well for me. And I think actually Jerry at the end of the last episode mentioned that too, when he says things, it, it takes on a different dimension of meaning, if we could use that word that was used earlier. Um, so I'm just wondering what we think about this section here, where we've got this issue of you know people who disagree uh, in what they believe. And so if Protagoras is right, Protagoras might say something, I, I measure knowledge this way, and because I measure it, I am right. And then there'd be other people who would say, no, I don't measure the same way. Uh, and therefore I'm right. So what do we do when two
5: people are right? Can we have two right? Um, so I'm wondering what you think about this, Rich. Well, I'm trying
4: to understand this quote, um, man is a measure of all things. Um, as I understand it, it's probably been discussed a lot. It, what they're saying is that we judge for ourselves, basically. And this concept of truth, in other words, an objective truth, is something that Socrates, you know, throws in there. But in, in doing so, he kind, of contra- he kind of proves his own idea of objectivity being, to be wrong. I mean, he's just, he's just illustrating how you can't find the objective because, you know, people are going to have differences of opinion. So I, I don't see anything really profound here other than the fact that Socrates is still kind of grasping at this idea of objective truth. Man is the measure of all things, yeah. I, I have my experience, I have my perspective of life, I see things in the way I see it. I will relate them to you and you will have a different perspective and different experiences and we can discuss it. And we may come to consensus, we may not because we're different or we may decide we'll share the same view, it happens. But Socrates is creating his own problems by in, in, strongly implying here that there's such a thing as an objective truth in this argument.
1: Thank you. I think I think actually Socrates may be challenging the idea of an objective truth because he's saying here that uh, there is subjectivity uh, competing with objectivity. That's the way I that's the way I'm reading this particular section. The full quote, um, Man is the measure of all things is at 152a, um, where uh, Socrates says, Says that Protagoras put what Theotetus was saying in a rather different way, for he says, you know, that man is the measure of all things, of the things which are that they are, and of the things which are not that they are not. So Protagoras is actually saying that man, each individual person, can determine what is, in other words, what exists and what is not, or what does not exist. So he's, Protagoras is saying that each one of us is capable of determining or distinguishing between being and non-being. That's my understanding of that, of that part of 152A.
5: Um, of so
4: Whether it's an objective or it's a subjective view. I mean, right. you only have problems if you're looking for objective view. Right. So, you know, the argument could be very simply put, I, I see it my way, you see it your way and let's talk right. about it. Right. Um and that's yeah. everything. Everything that Socrates is saying here it seems to imply somewhere that there's an objective truth. Or, you know, if I say something and then you disagree, or whatever. Then, then there's a right. There's no right or wrong when you're talking about subjectivity. You, everyone is correct from their own point of view until they change their mind.
1: And, and does that lead to a logical problem? I guess it's maybe the way I'm reading this section. What, what are your thoughts, JK, on, on this section and, and the, the point that Rich has just raised?
6: Well, initially, the statement man is the measure of all things. You, you could take it like uh, in general, in a general sense, man is the measure of all things because we um, together agree about what is true and what is not you know and at that time well everybody believed in the gods and so forth and in a general sense we do agree, agree that there is a reality that we we uh cooperate and and uh, and conduct our businesses accordingly and so that is that is true but when it comes down to individual men or and you know women there are there are some relative differences you know right and so there are disagreements um and so that would not be true because initially when i read that statement you know, uh, from uh, you know represent Protagoras's point of view in general that is true you know because because uh, most men do agree that there is a a reality that we live in even though you know
5: not every particular instance, do we, you know, each of us agree? We have opinions and so forth that differ. And, and I'm wondering, you know, JK, if that point kind of ties to what
1: Socrates says at 160C. Um, this was in our last session, when he says, for our being is by necessity's decree tied to a partner. And yet we are tied neither to any other thing in the world, nor to our respective selves. Uh, and this idea, I think that you just spoke about, about the necessity of agreeing on things before we can establish the final measure of something. I'm wondering
5: if that's uh, maybe what uh, what he's getting at here. Um, Donald, what do you think about that? I think I'm slow to unmute. Um,
9: I I think that when we make general statements like and and Socrates is getting at here at it in, in this dialogue we have to see we have to consider how those statements are when they apply are applied to themselves we talked a few weeks ago about you know sort of the the set that contains all other sets and the problems that Russell and Whitehead got into in their Principia Mathematica or whatever it was called. And so this is the same thing here. If if somebody asserts everything is relative, how do they do that and avoid the problem that, well, that statement is relative. Is not, if that statement is relative, then everything is relative. But if that statement is relative, is not considered relative, considered absolute, which is the way it's typically intended, then there's at least one exception to the fact that every every, you know, all statements are relative, except for the one that says, they are, except for the one that says they are relative, and it's absolute. And I think Socrates is kind of walking Theotetus through these sorts of subtleties in argumentation. He's in reductio ad absurdum. Now he's doing sort of reflexivity and stuff. So is if uh Pythagoras asserts that. Man is the measure of all things. What does that say for his his own status, the status of that statement? If I've misinterpreted what you've what you were going for, but that's kind of what I saw here.
1: I like the way you put that, you know, that all statements are relative, except the statement that all statements are relative, which is an absolute statement. And uh, I thought there was an interesting use of logic there that, uh, and and maybe this is the question with this, is that is there such a thing as absolute knowledge? Um, Maybe this is a question that's being asked with this particular um, reading that we're looking at here. Um, so I'll move to Moshe. I think I, I skipped over you, Moshe, last time unintentionally. So we'll move to
5: you, and then we've got Rich. Uh, Moshe? Um,
8: okay, I just want to I'll put my particular point on this, which is it, my opinion is the real point. What you brought up at 152a uh, in the Joette translation, uh, it is indeed the opinion of Protagoras, who has another way of expressing it. Man, he says, is the measure of all things, of the existence of things that are and of the non-existence of things that are not. Uh, this is takes us to the very heart of what philosophy at this particular time was about. It was about understanding the meaning of being quay being, what it means to exist. Okay, I know that there's a distinction between existence and being. I don't want to go down that road, but I will use the two as equivalent right now, with the idea that I can, I can, I can separate them in the future. But we're talking about things at the very highest level of generality. Okay, if we're talking about, if uh, I, I think Donald's point about self self-referential statements was was interesting, but I I think we have to differentiate between what Protagoras is saying at the highest level of of generality in in metaphysics is different from what people interpret Protagoras to be saying about uh, one person saying it's hot and another person saying it's cold. Uh, I I mentioned last week that if we're both, that I I put it in the frame of of, uh, predicate relativism requires subject absolutism. That If if we're going to say that, if I'm gonna say that the water's hot and Rich is gonna say that the water's cold, we've gotta be talking about the same water, okay? Because we can't disagree Uh, In terms of the predicate, unless we agree upon, uh, unless we agree upon the subject, Uh, if if you take that and contrast that with something that that Protagoras would would have a problem with, being man is the measure of all things, it would be like saying that one plus one does not equal the same thing as six minus four. It's got to be the measure of all things to both of us. It it can't be. It's got to be two. Okay and 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 everybody, even Protagoras, has to agree that you know it, you know um, uh, I can't have a different idea than Rich has on that. Uh, we might disagree about what the number two uh, um, means. I mean, is it a set? is it a is it accountable thing? Is it created or is it discovered? But we both have to be talking about the same thing here. i just I just want to say from my standpoint that this from a philosophical standpoint, Socrates is arguing with with Protagoras on the very highest level of abstraction. And to do philosophy, I think we have to be sensitive to that.
1: I, I like the, you mentioned subject and predicate again, uh, and you mentioned that last time, and it really it really stuck with me from from when you mentioned that last time, that, uh, that idea that you have to always be talking about the same thing. And maybe that goes back to what Richard Feynman said in that clip that we listened to last time, you know, that the, the purpose of... Um, of uh, understanding the name of something is so that at least we have this common point of reference. And I really like the way you use the reference to water, because that's something that uh, I think we can discuss, you know, in the remaining time that we have here. We've got about 45 minutes left. Um, You know, this this ending part of this uh, this section of the dialogue that we're looking at where you know we're we've got the opposed views of Heraclitus and Parmenides so Heraclitus says you can never step in the same water twice because everything's in flux and Parmenides says that uh, everything eventually leads to one and the one is changeless um, that's a, a, a perhaps a gross oversimplification oversimplica- of what was said in that end but uh, y- you raise the point and and I think that's well worth considering here that uh, that at least we have to be talking about the same thing before we can agree on it. Um, so I will, um, thank you for that. And we'll go to, uh, I've got rich and then Greg and JK. Uh,
4: rich. Yeah. In terms of, you know, human experience, you know, I say is each person has his own experience. I'm not making absolute statement. When I say that I say each person has own experiences, his own perspective, so this is not an absolute statement for logic, you know, to uh, uh, to 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 work on where logic is not proposition. It's an experience. It's, it's, it's an observation. And if we say we we have to, are we testing the same water when uh, hot or cold? Well, water changes. Are you doing it at the same time, the exact same moment? Is the body experience the same? People are more sensitive to certain types of water. One may say that's cold when they dip their uh, toe in the pool, and may say it's warm. Even though the pool is pretty uh, stable at that time, uh, they'll have a different experience. In terms of arithmetic, which is probably the most concrete uh, uh, abstraction we can have, because in real life we don't have two and four we have two apples and two apples. People will disagree where those two apples are equivalent to those two apples. They say, those are rotten and those aren't. But let's even talk about math and its, its most abstract form. You have to agree upon what base you're talking about. Are you talking about base 10, base two? You have to have an agreement first. So what we call objective knowledge is basically agreements by consensus. We agree for the most part that when we talk about math, we're gonna be talking about base 10. It's become habitual, but there's nothing to say that uh, one and one is uh, different in base two than it is base 10. It's just a matter of agreement. So I'm not making absolute statements here. I'm making observations about the nature of life and being. And the problem happens is when you try to create logic on top of that, those kind of general statements about experiences that I've observed in life. Thank you.
1: And this is what I really love about this whole podcast series is I learn something new every time from the opinions or from the knowledge of others. And what you just said Uh, Rich, about agreeing on the base for mathematical um, questions or for mathematical knowledge that just struck a chord in me because, you know, it makes me think of back in the Babylonians, for example, use base 60 Um, and, you know, now by convention, we use base 10, but it it doesn't necessarily always need to be so. And so if somebody were to read the history of our generation, say, a thousand years in the future, maybe a thousand years in the future, they'll use base five or they'll use base 20 or, you know, whatever, would they understand what we were saying? Because would they understand this implicit assumption? Like when I mentioned the number two, you know, as you said, I'm not saying I'm speaking about the number two in base 10. Right. So there's this assumption that's always there. And that's a powerful, actually, reference, I think, to what Plato said in Phaedrus. Uh, so I really appreciate that. And that that's, that really struck some learning in me. So I have learned from you and I, I appreciate that. That's a, a very important point. Um, Greg, your ideas?
7: Um, I'm kind of uh, thinking here, uh, you know, regarding the, the context of the time. That was really the beginning, I think, uh, the awareness of uh, such a thing of uh, subjectivity and objectivity. Even this words doesn't exist really didn't exist at that time in Greek language. It was a, a two a concept at a later later time. But nevertheless, they recognized at that time because of the uh, the you know the saying of uh, Protagoras uh, about the main measure, they start to realize there is uh, a view from a personal view. There's also a view from outside of us. So 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 they were struggling really at this time to 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 see that if there is anything uh, unchanging, universal, which we call a knowledge, does, does this exist? I mean, this actually is the, the you know the subject matter of the dialogue of uh, the teachers, and then this come to the you know the opinion versus uh, knowledge, and what if there is a knowledge such as thing uh, unchanging or universal? Now, what would be the criteria? How would we how do we qualify the truth? So, so, so that that have to come back. And at that time, one one really uh, forms one opinion based on uh, experience observation. You don't really have our ability of today of science. We can test with experiment. At the time, it really is is you know uh, everything is starting. I mean, now you start with opinion. And then you, you 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 put out for testing, and then people debate and come to a consensus that come to a kind of more stable knowledge. so so that that thing be because the consensus of many many people or, or use uh, uh, rich's word is agreement, come to agreement. And then in that sense, then, there is a general uh, kind of man is measure of things because it is uh, the man's agreement on that thing called knowledge, and therefore truth. But then the opinion and individual experiences. So I think that the two are really, uh, you know, in a two way that I can touch upon the subjectivity and then the, the objectivity in a nice way. And through this discussion, that something more stable uh, come out regarding the definition of knowledge and then how to seek knowledge uh, and leading to science. That's, that's what I think
1: the you know if all if all knowledge or if there was a, such a thing as absolute knowledge where would opinion belong i think if i'm understanding your question and i think that's uh, it's an important one you know and and one that i think will help to prepare us for season 2 where we're going to look at the republican plato's famous idea of the divided line and where opinion fits on that line and and you know opinion is based on our individual experiences and i think that's that's so important it's actually a good lead in to the second reading uh, that I selected for today, if we would like to do that, and uh, uh, we've got a few more comments before before we get to that. But I just wanted to say that I think that's a good lead into that second reading. Um, the um, yeah, well, maybe I'll just I'll leave it at that, and we'll go to to JK and then to Moshe. JK,
6: yeah. Um, thank you for that article you um, relayed to us about the Wittgenstein's uh, uh, language and um, and meaning and so forth. Uh, to me, what this uh, you know that uh, article, you know, just uh, you know relates to this. Uh, what we're talking about here is that the um, uh, that language is something that we all agree on, right? So, so in that sense, the, uh, uh, the idea that Protagoras that man is a measure of all things is that the uh, you know man agrees upon these kind of language games and and certain knowledge that's the you know. Uh, you know, um, that is entailed by these language games and so forth. So, but we're not just repeating, like a, a parrot repeating the language. There is a meaning behind the languages. And for each subjectivity, subject person, using a language, there is a agreed upon meaning. And then there is a subjective meaning behind that, perhaps, right, that is different. And so it would be, you know, uh relative in that sense. So each person could have, you know, could understand both the, the public agreed upon meaning of that language, but at the same time, there could be differences. There could be, you know, individual, you know, um, differences in how a person understands what that language, you know, entails. Mm-hmm.
1: And that, I think, relates to the point that Moshe brought up last time um, about the, the the private language and the public language, and then this, this understanding that needs to be established between the two, uh, or or this understanding that needs to supersede either, a, you know, I don't think we necessarily concluded on it last time, but uh, it's an important point, I think, to understand that there's, that there's meaning embedded in the knowledge that we have, and maybe that's Kind of what i was asking at the beginning before we started that clip with melanie mitchell today is uh you know if knowledge constitutes the account of the reasons why again going back to what uh, socrates says at the end of the meno in making that account um how do we how do we ensure that that account is recorded along with that knowledge um and so that that meaning isn't lost over time um, I just maybe just relay briefly, I I was watching a um, being following the YouTube channel of Brian Keating is a physicist, and he was interviewing, I think it was Lee Smolin, recently, and he made the point that, you know, maybe, you know, 100 years in the future, people will look back on our age and say, Oh, people ate meat, that was so wrong. You you know, we're moving to a more plant based diet now. And, you know, but If one were just to simply render that judgment in the future to say that these people who live now in 2021 were barbaric or silly or whatever judgment they would render in 100 years on our dietary habits, uh, would they necessarily understand the account of the reasons why we we eat what we eat? Uh, Would they understand that people who grew up in uh, areas that did not have access to plant-based food, had to eat something and this is what they did. Uh, would they understand all of that history or would they just look at the current circumstances and say, you know, render their judgment and, and you know, cast their judgment on us? And so that, I think that's an important idea with with knowledge is that, you know, that account of the reasons why also has to uh, accompany the the knowledge.
5: Right.
1: So,
6: so
5: back
6: yeah. to you, um. Uh, your your uh, video of climate, um, you know, saying that the name is not everything. You know, mm-hmm. there's much more to the to, to to the thing than just the name, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's that whole account. That question, why, I think, is the important question. Moshe,
5: your your thoughts?
8: Um, I, I'm afraid I've been misunderstood, so I, I'm going to try to approach this from a different standpoint. Um, I, I'm saying that in uh, in hexadecimal or octal or or base ten decimal, we can represent on and off, one and zero, is and is not, and they are equivalent. They are the same. We can represent in hex one plus one and six minus four, and they both will come out with the same value. Okay. We if 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 you say they don't. You're 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 either equivocating or you're making a mistake. Now, I'm not talking about what particular language uh, we're 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 using. If you want to say, well, it doesn't mean you know, hex and decimal are the same language. Okay, fine, that's 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 true, but it's trivial. The point is that we do have to be talking about. It, it does represent the same the same thing. And going back to what Socrates is talking about, uh, vis-a-vis Protagoras. He's talking about whether or not there is something or there is nothing. Okay. And this this is of prima facie importance at the foundation of our Western experience. Uh, whether the something is, you, you know, what the value of that something is. It's not just that that any individual can come up and say, oh, well, there's not really anything there. You know, it, we have to, we, 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 Protagoras cannot um, um uh, there's no foundation for Pythagoras to be able to say that at that particular level, it's it's all open to, you know, uh, whoever wants to say anything they want to uh, about being as such.
5: And uh, thank you for the clarification and expansion on that idea.
1: It, it's important, I think, that we understand and and appreciate what each other is saying. So you know, and I think that was that was helpful. Um, I just actually want to acknowledge what uh, Jacob mentioned in the chat window. Um, I'm not always able to follow what's going on in the chat window as I'm moderating here, but uh, he makes the point that knowledge is always limited. Uh, it is always of the past and not what is happening right now. And I think that's a, it's an intriguing idea that ties to Plato's conception of time uh, in that the present, you know, Plato says, is the state of coming to be. So it is not yet being.
5: But it is coming to be, and uh, so that's an important point that we might want to consider about knowledge. Um, Donald, your thoughts? Yes, I, I liked what Moshe said.
9: Being somewhat mathematical myself, I don't think base or representation would affect any mathematics at all. Uh, and as as far as measure, I still think uh, that that Theotetus's work or Theodorus's work on the incommensurability, some numbers are incommensurable,
5: reflects directly on
9: Pythagoras and man being the measure. This is a, 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 a simple problem that can be easily demonstrated and you don't get to have your own opinion about it. You know, you don't get to measure these lines differently in a way that makes them commensurable. So there is some objective, although whether mathematics is really a science of the world, I, I, am not certain, but, but if you, take a given axiom set you don't get to pick and choose about what's a proof and how it works and what are legitimate results within that axiom set which is somewhat like the the picking the base for the numbers how they're represented we, we you know i always thought Feynman was really good i didn't think he's i guess I guess he got to be such a good physicist because he thought of first things, basic things and, and it's it's not names, it's the reality that underlies the names that you have to know, and then you can talk about them in whatever
5: base, if it's counting indeed, in I think the Feynman, as you said, I think
1: just kind of spoke well about the general principles and from understanding the general principles, we were able to work out the specifics. And I think that's that's a key about knowledge is that uh, sometimes, and maybe we see this in our real life experiences, that sometimes we get trapped in all sorts of specifics, which um, and we don't know how they tie together, how they connect. And so there's some sort of perhaps geometry to this connection that uh, that ties our specific pieces of knowledge to to different paths that that knowledge can take. And it's important that we understand those paths that knowledge can take. Um, I just wanted to mention actually what I've got on my screen background here is a qubit. that's a quantum, quantum computer bit uh, and it's a fundamentally geometric object and so this is what you know many thousands of people across the planet now are pursuing in terms of um, this is the this is the way that knowledge will be encoded and operationalized in the quantum computer and so the quantum computer is actually I think going to be with us and and very significant part of our computing power, I would say, you know, maybe even within five years. You know, there's a lot of people assume that it's going to be a long time. But I think that uh, that the challenges uh, that uh, they've experienced in entangling these quantum bits will be soon overcome. And this is something that I've been following you know, quite heavily during the pandemic is this whole quantum computing revolution. So I just thought that this was particularly interesting in terms of when we encode knowledge in this quantum bit or qubit. Uh, so the qubit is a, for those who can't see the screen or are listening to the podcast, the qubit is a sphere, and inside the sphere is a triangle, and this triangle rotates on two different planes. Um, and so the, the triangle has an orthogonal 90-degree angle in it, uh, and in this particular example on the screen, you know, we could, we could think that the radius of, of, uh, of those two lines uh, that form the, the base and the height of the triangle are one. For example, we could we could assign a unit value of one to them, which would make the diagonal uh, the square root of two. Uh, so you would have um, rational, commensurable measures on two sides one one and one, so the radius would be one, uh, and the irrational or incommensurable would be the square root of two. And so we've got this interesting problem when we start to encode knowledge in these in these spherical. Qubits that contain triangles, how are we going to draw that, how are we going to distinguish what happens in that square root of two measure? So I'm talking about the hypotenuse here of the triangle. And I think it actually relates to, um, you know, what I was going to do the second reading, but I think, you know, maybe in the interest of time, because we've got about 25 minutes left, maybe we can go to the third reading. And uh, maybe this would be a point to look at the third reading on the last page. And maybe we can talk about the second reading in the course of this. Um, the, the second reading was a particularly, I thought it was a particularly powerful section that really spoke to me of, of um, not creating feedback loops and retaining your individual capacity to, uh, to have opinions and to have different experiences from other people. So the second reading, which I don't think we'll get to today is 176A to 177A for those who want to uh, look at it on their own. But this third reading, I thought was particularly interesting. And it sort of takes us to the end of today's session, which, uh, you know, is this discussion between Heraclitus or or the discussion of Heraclitus and Parmenides and their contrasting approaches to to knowledge. Um, And, you know, if we could have a Again, somebody would like to volunteer for Socrates and somebody volunteer for Theotetus or I could do one of the roles if if uh, if somebody wants. But um, if we could have volunteers, that'd be so great.
8: I'm always good for uh, Theodorus.
1: Okay, (laughs) Or Theodorus, sorry. Um, Yeah, that's great, uh, Moshe. And um, well, I I can do Socrates if if, uh, if nobody else wants to jump in. All right, well, why don't we start the, the reading and then just kind of discuss the implications of this because I think it's, it's quite an important distinction here that Socrates is trying to make. So again, this is 181c to 182b. And I'll start with Socrates. So tell me, do you, do you call it motion when a thing changes from one place to another or turns round in the same place?
8: I do, yes.
1: Here then is one form of motion. And supposing a thing remains in the same place, but grows old, or becomes black instead of white, or hard instead of soft, or undergoes any other alteration. Isn't it right to say that here we have motion in another form?
8: Unquestionably.
5: Then I now have two forms of motion, alteration and spatial movement.
8: Yes, and that's quite correct.
1: Then, now that we have made this distinction, let us have a talk with the people who allege that all things are in motion. Let us ask them, do you hold that everything is in motion in both ways? That is, that it both moves through space and undergoes alteration? Or do you suggest that some things are in motion in both
5: ways and some only in the other?
8: Heaven knows I can't answer that. I suppose they would say in both ways.
1: Yes, otherwise, my friend, it will turn out that in their view, things are both moving and standing still, and it will be no more correct to say that all things are in motion than to say that all things stand still. Then I would want you to consider this point in their theory. As we were saying, they hold that the genesis, the genesis of things such as warmth and whiteness, occur when each of them is moving together with a perception in that in the space between the active and the passive factors, the passive factor thereby becoming percipient, but not always a perception. the active factor becomes such and such, but not a quality. Isn't that so? Or perhaps quality seems a strange word to you. Perhaps you don't quite understand it as a general expression. So I'll talk about particular cases. What I mean is that the active factor becomes not warmth or whiteness, but warm and white, and so on. You will remember, perhaps, that we said in the earlier stages of the argument that there is nothing which in itself is just one thing. And that this applies also to the active and the passive factors. It is by the association of the two with one another that they generate perceptions of the things perceived. And in so doing, the active factor, factor becomes such and such, while the fact of well, the passive factor becomes percipient.
5: So that was the that was
1: the section from that reading. And it kind of takes us back to the first part when we made that distinction between the active and passive factors that Socrates was presenting, the active factor being the observer and the passive, or sorry, the active factor being that which is observed and the passive factor being the observer. And I'm just wondering what we think about this particular section here and and how it relates to the difference in opinion between Heraclitus and Parmenides that Plato uh, talks about uh, before getting to this particular part. Um, is there anything that, that struck you in, in that approach and in, in, in the particular approach to knowledge that either those two, you know, are, they, are, are those two actually the extremes in the approach? Or uh, is, are there other
5: examples of, of different approaches to knowledge that we could think about? Rich, your thoughts?
4: I'll be brief. I mean, uh Heraclitus intuited it correctly. Everything's in motion, and we know that now scientifically, that nothing is ever stand still. There is nothing standing still. So thumbs up to Heraclitus for being able to intuit the fact that the the universe or the cosmos is uh in flux constantly and, and out of that flux. There's things that are created that are constantly changing, it, it, whether it be the observer or the observed, it's always, everything's always in flux. So good, 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 good man, Heraclitus. Mm-hmm. And the Tao, Tao says pretty much the same thing. And there was almost, almost concurrent in thought. Uh, so the Eastern philosophies and the Westerns almost concurrently came to the same idea, at least in terms of Heraclitus.
1: Is that rich in in both types of motion or does Heraclitus only recognize spatial motion or like this distinction that Socrates here is drawing between two types of motion, is that something that relates to Heraclitus?
4: Well, Heraclitus, you know, there's only fragments, so we really don't know. But Within those fragments, he's never talking about anything staying stationary. That Everything Mm -hmm. is in flux. Mm -hmm. Now, the Taoist, the Eastern philosophy, they do have the concept of the woo, where things stand still, that where you are before creation, you know, there was a a standstill, and it started to move, it started to move. Uh, So uh, there is that concept, but within Heraclitus' fragments, he seems to be pretty consistent that everything is constantly changing, which in fact is what modern science says. There's nothing, there's nothing that's not moving in modern science.
5: Interesting and
1: certainly in, in the con- in the physical concept, uh, I definitely see that. I'm wondering if in a in a uh, philosophical concept that's the case as well. Um, and so I'm wondering what what others think of that. You know, again, this idea of whether there's two types of motion that you subscribe to, this idea of Socrates, um, and how that affects our understanding of
5: change. Uh, Moshe, your ideas. Oh,
8: I see. I'm unmuted. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Um, uh, this modern science business. If I take a look at my uh, wooden desk uh, and I start to look at it through a microscope, I see that it's not all solid. Uh, but you know, it's made out of fibers, and there's spaces between the fibers. And if I take a look at the fibers, I I see that the fibers are made out of molecules, and the molecules are made out of atoms, and the atoms are mostly made out of space, so uh, I'm, gonna take my, uh, I'm gonna take my pencil here and I'm gonna drop it on the desk and I tell you what I'm expecting based on that analysis. It will go all the way through the desk and onto the floor. Okay, so here's the experiment, I'm gonna drop it now. I want everyone to be prepared for this. Whoa, hold on, stop the presses, it didn't, all right? So from a scientific standpoint, um, um, it, it's certainly conceivable that um, that everything uh, uh, is in motion in some way, uh, but from a human standpoint, it's not in motion. I mean, I'm living in a solid world uh, with solid things around me, and um, uh, it, it could be the case that even on the scientific analysis, if they find if they are finally able to isolate something that we would call an atom in Greek, you know, the divided, the indivisible, that while that thing might be moving in space or moving relative to other things, there's no motion in that at all. So I, I don't wanna beg the question of whether uh, just because science says it, uh, that means that that's what philosophically we're talking about being as such. I at least wanna leave it open uh, because there are many different ways that you can construe uh, science and even mathematics that make it an open philosophical question. And I don't think that we're just, you know, that we're just flapping our philosophical lips here just to be able to hear, you know, just to be pedantic with each other. I think there's an important role for philosophy to play in the part of human beings, uh, none the least of which is how to live uh, how to live a virtuous life without having to depend on, you know, superstition or supernatural beings, and those things depend upon our concept of what reality is. I, I just want to open it up. I, I just want to push it that way.
5: It, I think you put that powerfully and,
1: um, you know, you gave us a lot to think about. Uh, it makes me think of our discussion on the Carmides, you know, the Plato's dialogue on science and the science of self. And I think the importance of that, I listened to an um, interview of Uh, philosopher Daniel Dennett yesterday um, and he made a really good point about philosophy is that it teaches us how to ask the questions or what questions to ask. Um, It teaches us to use our minds to, to frame the questions because it's based on how the questions are framed that lead us to specific scientific discoveries and so I think I think what you just said is a very powerful um, defense of keeping that openness and understanding that uh, that there are other things out there that can be discovered. Um, JK and they rich.
6: Yeah, I guess uh, you know it raised the question: uh, if everything is changing and uh, <clears throat> and nothing is is really uh, stable, um, the question is: you know, uh, we're talking about mathematics. Why do they? Why does mathematics? Uh, the knowledge of that um, mathematics uh, remain the same. You know, two plus two equals four. That's it. You know, and all these uh, you know these forms of mathematics is not changing right all the time because every time we do that calculation, it's the same. And uh, that's the question. And the, uh, but I you know I I, I do uh, basically agree with Heraclitus and and, uh, and the Taoist philosophy that. Uh, Everything is in a constant uh, state of constant change, but there's a, it's a there's an idea in our minds, and it's uh, it's you know I guess maybe it's generated by our memory that uh, there's a memory of something that does not change. And what is that? What is that memory? You know the concept of these mathematical forms. Why do they, why do they uh, remain the same if every everything is changing? And so there, yeah, there's other forms of knowledge too that uh,
5: that uh, don't change and and that's the question i guess in the i think quite a relevant question
1: to especially to modern understanding of quantum theory you know this idea that when you make an observation the actual observation itself changes the outcome uh and to understand how that's going to be reflected in in knowledge and the way we record our knowledge. So if we if we have an accurate memory of knowledge, um, it can't be subject to to any infidelities. And so I think this is maybe the situation with these quantum bits that we have to understand: is how to get a an accurate recording with with fidelity. Um, and and especially if if we think that. As Heraclitus says, everything is in flux, including the two types of motion: the spatial motion and the the our, our individual state. You know that 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 alteration that that uh, Socrates says is the t- second type of motion. Rich, your thoughts?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, a, a couple of comments here. Uh, one, I was observing Moishe's demonstration, and during the demonstration, everything was changing. Pencil dropped, the pencil moved, something hit the table, my mind changed. It's true the table didn't move in that circumstance because the table was relatively stable, but it could have moved. I mean, there's nothing to say it would not move. It is constantly deteriorating because of the motions of molecules. And eventually that table will change shape considerably, but over a long period of time. So for practical purposes, uh, you can depend upon that that table to be there, but just for practical purposes, it's changing constantly. In terms of mathematics, mathematics changes. They create new mathematics all the time to solve new problems. And within science, they create new things like dark matter constantly when things don't seem right. If you read scientific journals, there's constant disagreement about the meaning of things. There's nothing stable there. And a question about two and two as an abstract two and two equals four, those are just symbolic. We have two numbers, two and two, and we say plus symbolically' will equal something called four. But in real life, in real life, no two things are equal. no two things are exactly the same. They're constantly changing. they're different. But for practical purposes, this is what Bell always said, for all practical purposes, we say, okay, those two apples are equal to those two apples because we're, we're, we're doing some commerce here. We say, I'm going to give you two balls you're going to give me four apples, okay? But in reality, those two are different. Now, this is where philosophy really comes in handy, to distinguish that which is trying to be made concrete for practical purposes from that which is not really the same because they really aren't. And that's where Heraclitus comes in handy. remind us that, yeah, we can say that river is the same river as we saw last year for practical purposes, but it really isn't. There's been changes.
5: The way you set that distinction between practical purposes and real purposes, I I thought was interesting.
1: And certainly, um, you know, when we look at the geometry of this sphere that the, that's going to constitute the, the qubit in which knowledge will be recorded and transmitted. Uh, we've got the, the challenge of the circumference, you know, the ratio of the c- circumference to the diameter being something that is transcendental and irrational, pi, you know, pi goes on forever. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, how do we deal with that difference between practicality and and the real, uh, you know, if we can use the word real basis of things, you know, if, if something's practical, you know, it being good enough. And I, I, I did like that experiment that, that Moshe did. I think that that really helped to illustrate things. Um, but when we start recording knowledge that's gonna be preserved for all of time, how do we ensure that that the practicalities don't get in the way of understanding something, you know, hundreds or thousands of years in the future? Uh, it, it it's it's something that may be a particular challenge that we that we need to face now. Uh, Moshe, your ideas.
8: Uh, I, I just want to follow up on one thing that uh, that that uh, that Rich said, which was excellent. You know, if I come upon you know a river, uh, you know, I I I go out on a hike in the Adirondacks, and you know, I come upon a river, and then I, I go home, and then the next year I. Come upon the river, uh, you know, and, and he's saying, well, it's not the same river because everything has changed. Well, how would I know that? How could I possibly know? I mean, if everything is changing, how could I even possibly know that it's the same river or not the same? So, if it's impossible for me to know that it's neither the same river or not the same river, then we're left with one or two conclusions. We, or the first one is that, is that we might be faced with the conclusion that knowledge itself is impossible. And if knowledge itself is impossible, not only will we not be able to know that everything is in flux, nor will we ever be able to know that everything is, that anything is permanent. So if you push Handy Heraclitus uh, far enough and you make knowledge impossible, then the entire scientific, uh, scientific enterprise becomes impossible and it just becomes something that science, scientists do and that people pay for it. And it's a lot of fun. OK, we build huge, uh, uh, you know, colliders, and we send people into space and things like that. But knowledge is really fundamentally impossible, but we're getting a lot of fun. You know, we can eat sushi after, uh, you know, we blow something up in the <laughs> laboratory and everything like that, which makes science impossible. And it makes the philosophical enterprise the only game in town because the philosopher is going to be the only one who's going to tell you that that's silly talk and that we've got to get down to something more fundamental. I, I just you know, I I just want to bring out if we push Heraclitus far enough, the entire scientific enterprise becomes impossible, and we can't even say that things are constantly in motion because we we can't know it.
1: A good example, you know, that that unknowable. I mean, yes, you step in the river, and chances are you're not going to hit the same water molecules that you hit before, but it's possible, maybe, you know, in this infinite world of universe of infinite possibilities so that's an interesting uh, interesting example and and your question i think is very important how do we how do we make the scientific enterprise possible if no one can be sure like absolutely certain and maybe i'm wondering if that's why socrates said earlier that the knowledge always has to come in pairs it can't be just one single you know man is one man is the measure of all things um, Rich what he's, another
8: thing. I just yeah. want to follow up. There was another yeah. thing that Socrates said, which was if you're going to reduce everything to, you know, it was talking about mathematics and if you're going to reduce everything to possibilities or probabilities. A mathematician wouldn't be worth his salt. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, that's from the Theaetetus. So just because something's practical, well, great. But, you know, it's practical, but it's, it's practical, but it's silly because you're doing something that, that fun from a conceptual level, from a fundamental level, you've completely knocked the feet out from underneath it. So we'll be practical and we'll have a lot of fun and we'll eat some sushi and, and, and drink a lot of sake and that'll be good for all mankind.
1: Thank you. And and I just, I'm noticing the time and unfortunately we are running short of time, but uh, I'd like to to take Rich and Donald and get your take on that. And then, you know, just kind of before we wrap up and I don't think we'll come to a conclusion about Heraclitus or Parmenides today, but I think it'll set us up well for, for season two. So Rich, your, your thoughts on that. And then Donald, uh, if you can help to wrap us up.
4: Yeah. I'll be very quick. Cause I let Donald talk. One is, you know, we haven't defined what knowledge is yet. So we don't really know whether knowledge is possible or not in a world of flux. So. Uh, in terms of practicality, it's something that uh, philosophy can tell science that we what you're giving to us is not truth, but answers are practical. And as science delves deeper and deeper into the molecular world, the world, they have to change their ideas of what was true and not true when they discovered uh, the problem of, of quantum mechanics. So everything is changing. It doesn't mean it's not practical or useful. It just means that you have to be careful when you say you have the truth. That's all. one.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Certainly caution, always, always warranted. And we get into so many problems when one person claims to have the franchise on truth and others dispute. Um, Donald, and if you'd like to, uh, and then J.K., maybe if,
5: if you're both brief.
9: Heraclitus said you can't step into the same river twice. There's a ancient maybe joke that says Zeno corrected Heraclitus and says, you can't step into the same river once.
5: (laughs) That's a, that's a good, uh, a good point that Zeno makes
1: something worth considering. JK, then maybe if you would, uh, if you would wrap us up.
6: Yeah, I I think, um, you know, science, I think, um, you know, has, um, has some uh, you know ideas about uh, what the laws are and the universe, so-called uh, you know universe of ours, but you know that's something like, that represents like just a few percentage of what's there. You know, uh, you know, uh, you know, they, they admit that uh, science admits that we are only, you know, we're we're we only know what's about what's a few percent of 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 the universe. The rest of it, most of it, over ninety percent, ninety-five percent of it is. This consists of black, uh, black, uh, matter and black energy, right? Dark energy, dark energy and dark, uh, dark ma- matter, which we don't know nothing about. So maybe, you know, within this, uh, you know, three, 4%, we, we know certain laws, you know, uh, exists um, you know, that, that we, uh, we, we can, you know, posit and say, well, this is what the truth is. But maybe, you know, beyond that we don't. And it's, uh, and that would, uh, you know, be the part that's just constantly maybe, you know, changing all the time uh, that we, uh, you know, that we just don't know about.
1: Powerful point, I think, to end on is this question of dark matter and dark energy, which as you said, JK constitute, I think, I think the latest estimate is something like 95% of our universe. And so we know... What constitutes the five percent which is the visible matter but uh we don't know what constitutes 95 um and i think it was mentioned earlier you know that we're well i think it was said that we were creating knowledge of mathematics and of dark dark uh, matter but i think maybe it would be we could say that we're discovering uh, maybe not creating but discovering and so that's an important point that Um, we need to understand the limits of our knowledge um, and to understand and to appreciate what we don't know. And I think that's, you know, the the, the Socratic method through all of these dialogues is to get us to realize that there there are things that we don't know. And so if we think that we know something for certain, do we know all of the connections that that knowledge necessarily attaches to? And I think that's that's the question as we get into the digital age and transmitting knowledge in the way that we're going to be transmitting knowledge that we really uh, would do well to understand. And I think that's the benefit of philosophy to to all of this is uh, uh, it's a very, very practical application. And that's why I'm so, so happy to be hosting these sessions with Eva's wonderful help. You know, I, I just, you know, in wrapping up this season, I wanted just a special thank you to Eva for for all of your help. I mean, I, I just couldn't have done it without you and in, in sharing ideas and, um, you know, I just so greatly appreciate your your help in, in making this a very smooth experience. And, you know, thank you again to all of the participants uh, who have been with us on a regular basis and the new ones who uh, join us for certain episodes. I mean, it's all great, you know, and, and so to the extent that we can, generate and discover some knowledge together. I I think that's the real benefit of this. And I'm so looking forward to listening to the recording of this session, because I think we've just had a a fantastic discussion. And I I know I will discover things when I listen to it uh, that just are going too fast right now for me to process. So uh, I look forward to the memory of this session. and with that, I will uh, look forward also to season two, which will start in September and uh, hope that everybody uh, will consider returning and we'll grow the the presence. And hopefully over the summer, we'll be able to get a few one-on-one interviews recorded for the podcast. Um, that's my goal. And uh, so I will pass it over to Eva to wrap up our episode and we'll wind up the recording, but those who would like to stay after the recording ends and uh, hang out in Plato's cafe for about a half an hour more than welcome to so over to you Eva
0: thank you James this was a live recording of actual memories of Plato Pod today which is June 13th so we will be re- we will be recording and sharing yeah just like you said James this was a lot to process about memory and where we are and where we will be while, when we listen to this live meetings recording. It's always great to have you friends, James. Thank you for all the sharings and all the hours you give, and images, videos you share with the group. We appreciate all that. This live meetup, Plato, Plato's meetup, was possible with Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. And I am now stopping recording of the season season finale, and uh, looking forward to meet you at Plato's Cafe now. Bye, friends. Thank you.